Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Revelation 21 through 22, John offered a resplendent portrayal of a new Jerusalem without a temple, in which he seemed to reference the final chapters of Ezekiel. The puzzling issue for interpreters is why John chose to utilize Ezekiel's temple vision if he wanted to dispense with the temple. Andrea Robinson delves into the complex relationship between these two visions of heaven and earth, examining parallels between Revelation 21 through 22 and Ezekiel 40-48. through 48. In the process, Robinson also explores a variety of apocalyptic works from the Second Temple period to determine the tenor of thought in regard to the concepts of the Temple and the Messiah in John's day. Ultimately, she helps readers understand how John utilizes Ezekiel's imagery to portray Jesus Christ as the eschatological Temple, the place where heaven and earth unite. By uncovering how original hearers would have understood John's visions, Robinson's insightful study helps modern readers appropriate the same hope of a glorious future with the Messiah. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrea L. Robinson about her new book, Temple of Presence, the Christological Fulfillment of Ezekiel 40-48 in Revelation 21-22-5. Dr. Robinson completed her PhD in 2018 at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and is an associate pastor at Building Church in Madison, Alabama. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, I wonder if we could begin by uh, you just explaining how you became interested in biblical studies. Yeah, uh, so I became a Christian in my senior year of high school. I didn't really grow up in church, so I didn't know much about the Bible, Uh, but I've always loved to read and I've always loved to learn. So I right away just started digging into scripture. Uh, Then later in college, I started working on a bachelor's degree, actually in chemical engineering. And I can remember sitting and studying for my classes, just wishing I could be studying the Bible instead. Uh, I find scripture to be such an endless well of wisdom that that's remained applicable to the human experience for just thousands of years. And no matter how long I study it, uh, I continue to learn more and um, just gain more wisdom for my life. So after a few years of college, I realized that God was calling me to seminary. And at that point, I was pretty close to done with my engineering degree anyway. So I finished my chemical engineering degree and then transitioned right into seminary at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I finished my master's and then uh, had always intended on continuing a PhD. But my original plan was to do Old Testament and Hebrew. Uh, but right as I was about to begin, New Orleans introduced a new program uh, called Biblical Interpretation. And, and I decided to go that route instead because this program actually requires competencies in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And we also focus more on the interpretive methodologies 
than the more traditional Old Testament or New Testament degree. And so as a result, a lot of us in the program have actually written dissertations that uh, focus on interpretive methodologies or intertextual studies. And that's what my book, Temple of Presence, is. It's, it's just a revised version of my dissertation. Great. So I wonder if you could share um, what led you to write on this topic. So one of my primary areas of study, uh, even, even in my master's work, has been the temple cult of ancient Israel. And I'm very interested in the meaning behind the elaborate systems of ritual, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and how all that is reflected in the New Testament. And I actually began the process that led to my dissertation in the Gospel of John. Uh, Of course, uh, most of us are familiar with the passage in John 2, where Jesus directly refers to his body as the temple. And in John 14, I believe that Jesus is heavily implying that he's the embodiment of the temple in that chapter as well. Uh, So I became curious about how the idea of Jesus as temple might relate to Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And this is a passage that uh, interpretively is, is very difficult and very disputed. Um, so, so I was really interested to see how that tied in with, with the New Testament. Uh, and I don't remember how I ended up in Revelation because previously I really avoided Revelation. I had no really interest in, in, in studying Revelation, and I certainly never would have planned on working on it for a dissertation. Uh, it just seemed kind of intimidating to me. But, but once I started seeing the parallels between Ezekiel 40 through 48 and the temple vision in Revelation, uh, I, I began to understand both passages better as I studied them in tandem. And as a result, I really wanted to continue to dig deeper, not only to help myself understand what was going on better, but to help others as well, because because these are difficult passages and there's not a lot of interpretive uh, consensus. And so I, I just wanted to contribute to the discussion in this area. Yeah, well, you certainly did. So let's dive in to the um, to the content of your work. And so, in your introduction, you state your guiding thesis that John presents Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple vision, which connects Ezekiel forty through forty eight with Revelation twenty one one through twenty two five. So, to get there, you first start with a review of literature and an investigation in how Ezekiel has been interpreted. That's kind of covering your chapters two and three. So for our listeners, what do people need to know about the history of interpretation for Ezekiel's temple vision? Okay. So as I began to dig more into these two passages, Ezekiel 40-48 and John 21-22, which as a side note, I think that that most reputable scholars agree that, that John is drawing on Ezekiel as one of his major sources uh, in in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. So what I discovered that was how each scholar viewed John's use of Ezekiel that really depended on their own interpretation of Ezekiel. So in other words, each scholar's interpretation of Ezekiel is sort of the primary factor in determining whether John uh, remained faithful to Ezekiel's original intent or whether John sort of diverged and, and used it in his own new way. Uh, so as for Ezekiel itself, most interpretations fall into one of two camps. The first is li- literal uh, or 
or architectural. Um, literal is a bit of a difficult term there because it can be used in different ways. But when we say literal, we really just mean like exactly what the text says. It's an architect- architectural building that's going to be built in a city and, and all those details. So for the most part, those who hold the literal or architectural view anticipate an actual third temple to be rebuilt along with the restoration of a sacrificial system. So one of the biggest problems with this view, at least for Christians, is that the atoning death of Christ has rendered the sacrificial system obsolete. We, we do not need the sacrificial system anymore. Um, however, one of the greatest strengths of this view is that it, it makes a lot of sense of the excruciating level of detail that Ezekiel goes into in these chapters. Um, scholars in this camp tend to argue that that Ezekiel would not have included such uh, exhaustive detail if he didn't intend for the temple to actually be rebuilt. Now, in the other camp, we have the figurative interpretations. And those are kind of all over the place. There, there's a lot of, uh, of variation in the figurative interpretations. But in general, the, the scholars that argue for a figurative interpretation would say that the details of the vision point to theological realities. And Daniel Blog, in particular, provides a especially insightful analysis in his Ezekiel commentary. So after looking at both of these camps, uh, I kind of distilled each group down to their primary emphases. For the literal ones, uh, first, God's promises are fulfilled in Ezekiel's vision. You know, regardless of, of how you, you view Ezekiel's vision, God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Uh, second, structure, structures that ensure pro- proper worship are going to be established. And then third, the fulfillment of God's, uh, excuse me, the, the fulfillment of prophetic promises make the presence of God available to all people. Now, in the figurative views, the primary ideas are that the perfection of God's plan is expressed through highly ordered legislation and architecture. So that's not to say that that it's actually going to be built, but but we're saying that God's plan is perfect and these perfect details are reflecting that. Second, the holiness of God is emphasized through sort of this perfect design and symmetry. And then third, all the elements work together to safeguard the presence of God with his people. So nothing can can sort of impinge on the holiness and the fellowship between God and his people. And so if we're listening closely, um, you might notice that these two sets of ideas really don't diverge greatly from each other between the figurative and the literal. So whichever camp you're in, we're going to have the outworking of God's promises and plan. We're going to have the holiness and worship of God as a vital component. And the most important element and, and the core of my argument in this entire book really is that the temple makes the presence of God available to all people. And that's that's whether it is the architectural temple or the temple in some other form, right? Yeah, that that's very helpful. And I found that incredibly enlightening. And I really, I really appreciate how you kind of cover those things and then bring um bring those similarities to the front. So then you also from there thoroughly examine a large selection of Jewish literature that both predates and is contemporaneous with revelation. Yeah. I'd be curious about, um, you know, what did you find there that will shed light on Ezekiel and his temple? 
So, yeah, uh, this is a really large section of the book, and, and the chapters on the non-biblical literature are actually the longest chapters in the book because once I started uh, reading all these extra-biblical sources, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, and, and initially, going into the study, I imagine that, that John was just super innovative in his portrayal of the Messiah and his use of temple imagery. Uh, I, I imagined that there was a more widespread expectation of uh, an architectural temple. Uh, now, in the early literature, we do have more of the architectural temple, but but we still have both. So we still have expectation for a literal temple. We have that in Tobit, um, in Sibylline Oracle 3, some of the testaments of the patriarchs. Um, and then... But what's really interesting is when you get to the sectarian literature of the Qumran community. Uh, Now, they viewed themselves as a temple of righteous individuals, and they believe that they embodied many of the functions of the temple. And so so when I saw this, I I was um, so excited because I thought, wow, you know, this is so close to what I'm arguing. And and here we have an example. Um, But at the same time, it's not that straightforward either. Uh, because temple conceptions at Qumran were so complex. And so in addition to viewing themselves as a temple, they also had a robust theology of this heavenly temple that simultaneously existed and still expected a literal temple to be rebuilt at some point in the future. Uh, And the authors of all these various sectarian texts drew upon Ezekiel in both literal and figurative ways. But but let me give a little caveat with that, because even when they, they sort of reference Ezekiel in different ways, they, they nearly always remain very sensitive to the theological core of Ezekiel's message. And that's what we just talked about previously in, in that last question. Uh, so uh, in the extra biblical literature that was composed around the same time as Revelation, we also have... Um, still literal and figurative presentations of the temple Um, in Sibylline Oracles one and two, which are actually, uh, they're a little bit later than three, which is sort of confusing, but the author presents a Messiah who embodies what the temple represents. Now this text is from Asia minor, which is the same region from which revelation originates. So it's especially relevant for the study. Uh, Also very relevant in text from the from a whole time span that I looked at, Ezekiel's temple is often referred to in descriptions of a heavenly temple. Now, one thing that's important to remember as we study these early texts and in, in trying to decipher the difference between literal and figurative and which is which, we have to remember that our distinction didn't really exist. The, the distinction between material and spiritual was just not as pronounced as it is today. Um, And so in many of these early texts, Ezekiel's temple city was used as a model for the heavenly Jerusalem that would appear on the earth in the eschatological age. So when we look at this in in relation to Revelation, we see that John is implying that his temple city is the same as Ezekiel, which may mean that he is trying to uh, get us to understand that Ezekiel's city is some form of this heavenly sanctuary. And his portrayal of the Messiah at the center of it is fully at home in the literary and theological milieu of his day. That was very surprising to me. I, I did not anticipate 
uh, the, the Messiah figure in Second Temple period literature as actually having attributes and, and serving the function of the temple. I thought that was sort of John's innovation, uh, but, but it really wasn't. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I love how, how you bring that up and I wasn't expecting that either. And that creates such a, uh, an amazing kind of background for then as you put Ezekiel 40 through 48 and then Revelation 21, 1 through 20, uh, 22, 5 side by side and compare their content. I wonder if you could just maybe summarize your findings when you looked closely and, and compared those two texts. Sure thing. So as you mentioned at the start, one of the primary questions that that I sought to answer was, if John wants to basically get rid of the temple, why in the world is he relying so heavily on Ezekiel's temple vision? And and as you've already stated, my, my conclusion was that John presents the Messiah as the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. Uh, So I began noting these linguistic and topical parallels between the two passages, Ezekiel and Revelation. And I won't list them all because that's really basically what that that whole chapter uh, is about toward the end of the book. Um, but, But some of the more really important ones are the spirit and presence of God, the walls, the gates, the, the construction materials, and the Eden, the Edenic setting, the the tree of life, the water, um, all those um, the paradise sort of sort of symbols there. And I noticed that John in Revelation was consistently replacing these architectural elements with either people or qualities of people, such as holiness, strength, purity. Uh, and so on. And so in this comparison, I used criteria that G.K. Beale has has defined in his excellent commentary. He's probably uh, the foremost evangelical scholar on Revelation for anybody who may not be aware of his scholarship. Um, so, But I used his criteria to determine how John is, is using these parallels. And, and I determined basically that, that most of the parallels are indeed clear allusions to Ezekiel. Now, I'm not saying that Ezekiel is the only source that John is using, but uh, it is definitely one of the primary ones. And when he does reference Ezekiel, it's it's almost always clear that he is intentionally referring to Ezekiel. Um, and, and so the conclusion that I came to ultimately was that John is basically distilling Ezekiel down to the essence of the prophecy, right? That That theological core that we keep talking about. Uh, And and there are indeed quite a few scholars who have noticed that John exhibits a condensing tendency tendency in the sources that he draws upon in his um, in his presentation. Yeah. So, yeah, as John distills Ezekiel down to its essence um, and you do a great job of, of highlighting that and showing these parallels in your view, then as, as we wrap up, um, why do you think that John drew from Ezekiel? What, what do you think John was trying to accomplish? Yeah, so Ezekiel was a very difficult text for not just for us uh, now today, uh, but also for Jews throughout history. Jewish people uh, have have struggled to understand what is going on in Ezekiel, and it was actually a text that was forbidden to be studied for a while because the rabbis even viewed it as as dangerous. And and so I think John 
like many of us, want to understand. He, he wants to understand what is going on there. And I think as part of his own inspired uh, by, by the Holy Spirit, as part of his own uh, scripture writing, he is helping us to understand what's going on in Ezekiel. He's showing us that these promises, these Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled based on the advent of Christ. So so I believe that his vision in 21 and 22 is intended to clarify what's happening in Ezekiel. So considering how extensively he uses Ezekiel 40 through 48, it's almost certain that it's intentional. I I don't see how uh, it could not be. Um, and it's virtually impossible that he omitted the temple by accident. So I believe that he intentionally generated dissonance between his own vision and Ezekiel's vision at at key points to draw attention to his main points. So as I said before, his, his vision is fully at home in the literature of this time, but there are certain points that, that are sort of striking or sort of shocking that, that really would, would help. Uh, an original reader, almost like uh, it, when we see in, in a lot of modern translations that the words of Jesus are highlighted in red. These distinctions and these areas of dissonance, uh, even though obviously they wouldn't be highlighted in red and uh, often were, were heard verbally rather than even written, but, but they would stand out so clearly to original hearers. And, and so when the heavenly city is coming down, which by the way, it, it doesn't do an Ezekiel. And uh, I can't think of any of the literature that I read that the the city does not descend. It may appear, but it does not descend. And so when we see this heavenly city coming down, the saints are to recognize that, oh, this is the heavenly city that we've been hoping for, the heavenly temple we've been hoping for. Uh, And and that God's presence is now going to be available to everyone as as Eden is is finally restored. Um, And then when we see these walls and gates that are actually no longer walls and gates. We don't need them. We're safe. Uh, The saints are are to begin to understand that, oh, we embody the new Jerusalem. We embody what those walls and gates represented. We we are pure. We are holy. We are strong. Uh, We are are now undefiled, those kind of things. And then when you get to the centerpiece of Ezekiel's vision is not there, the temple, it's absent. Um, that would be a huge exclamation point for original hearers. And and the hearers would, would be expected to understand because Christ is literally right there in the middle. Uh, hearers would be expected to understand that the Messiah is embodying everything that the temple represented for the Jewish people and that original audience that was waiting and hoping for either their Messiah or a restored temple or both. Wow. Yeah. I I think that is so helpful. And I I enjoyed this study so much. Um, I think all of our listeners should go and get this book. And, you know, if you're interested in how uh, the temple is fulfilled, if you're interested in Revelation or Ezekiel, this is, I think, a really crucial study for um, understanding those texts. Um, so before we wrap up, Dr. Robinson, would you mind sharing with us maybe what you're working on next, if you have any future scholarly plans? Yes. Uh, well, a couple, a couple of different avenues. Um, a lot of my time recently has gone into, uh, because as, as a pastor, we are, are producing a lot of uh, devotionals just to keep our 
uh, our congregation and our church family encouraged during uh, these kind of unusual times that we're living in. And so um, prior to that, I actually had started working on a, a book of devotionals. And, and so I've spent a lot of time working on uh, this devotional book uh, on a more scholarly on the more scholarly side, uh, I'm, I'm still doing some work in John, uh, John chapter 14, John chapter two, this idea of Jesus as the temple. And um, when, when Jesus talks about uh, I am the way and the life and, and following him and walking in his ways, I, I think this connects very closely with the Jewish idea of halakha. Uh, sort of walking out your faith. And uh, I think a lot of his words are uh, when he talks about temple and and the institution surrounding the temple and the cult, I think that Jesus is trying to show us how those different institutions are now lived out in the community of faith. And, and so I'm still kind of kind of working in, in this area of, of temple theology and, and how Jesus embodies the temple. Well, that is so exciting, and I, I can't wait for those things to take their final form. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Robinson, for spending time with us today. Um, for our listeners who are out there, this has been New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Until next time, take up and read. Mm-hmm.